Welcome to the third episode of the Think Wildlife podcast. Today, this episode is going to be in a slightly different format as we have two guests. These are Emma and Jimmy from Save the Rhino International. We'll be discussing a wide range of issues pertaining to rhino conservation, ranging from poaching to habitat loss and all in between. But before we begin the episode, let me make a very exciting announcement. So, we at Think Wildlife Foundation have partnered with various NGOs around India to help upscale alternative livelihood projects. These projects have the aim of providing sustainable livelihoods to 200 million people who live in and around national parks directly depending on India's ecosystems for sustenance. You can Find out more in the links below. So hello and welcome to the Think Wildlife Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you guys here to talk about rhinos around the world. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah. So my first question is that uh, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted rhino conservation? Yeah, so there's a there's a few ways. And obviously we're in 2023 now and things have changed a lot since that first year or six months. Um I would say really there's three different ways that it's had the biggest impact. So first of all, um, health and safety of people working in conservation. So we work in London, obviously our work day to day changed. We were then working at home and that had implications for our work here, just, you know, changing systems and working in new ways. Um, But also for the people working in the field. So a lot of rangers, their rotations and their hours on patrol changed quite a lot. They obviously every country had different restrictions. but many of them had to work extended shifts because they couldn't rotate, you know, for a longer time. They're away from their families much more. And then some people were sick and they had to cover for other people. So that took a lot out of those people working because it meant that their time was doubled and they were probably, well, they were overworked. Um, so that that became quite difficult. And obviously they had other protocols, things to happen when they were at work as well. Um, but in terms of, sort of more direct things for rhinos, the financial impact was huge just because of lack of tourism immediately a lot of the places that rhinos live are also part at least funded by tourism so that tourism shut down overnight as we all know and then those reserves didn't have the normal resources and the normal income that they would be able to use to spend on ranger salaries normal equipment um and and all of those things it just took quite a big hit so it meant that we as a team in london had to work out how we can you know find new sources of income to support the people on the ground whether that be kenya south africa indonesia um making sure that rangers had food and uniforms and it was really the basic stuff that was quite hard and challenging to fund and then lastly um the change in poaching now considering what i've just said about finances you might imagine that actually there was, you know, it was harder for capacity, it was harder for resources, there, where maybe it was easier to poach rhinos. But thankfully, um, those rangers, first of all, they were very dedicated, very committed people, and they continued to do everything they could. And um, the restrictions on every single country meant that actually domestic and international travel, you know, took also a big hit for people that weren't tourists necessarily. So it meant that actually, you know, poaching a rhino and then trafficking its horn legally out of the country was massively impacted and thankfully poaching went down in most places that started to change now obviously as those restrictions have lifted um but initially those were the main impact and we're still working through some of those now particularly the finance and making sure that people have enough of resource and capacity to move forwards how severe is the issue of rhino poaching and has there been any improvement in rhino poaching globally yeah so the um as I just mentioned, the the poaching impact through COVID changed quite a lot. But even then, and even now, you know, we're way 
below the highs of 2014, 2015. And those times we were seeing more than 1,200 rhinos poached every year, um, the majority of those being in South Africa. And, and those were quite you know stark years. Unfortunately, it's still, we're looking at around 400 to 500, the most recent stats. So that the, the numbers come out around this time, actually, um, January, February, um, every year. So we're, we haven't got the 2022 numbers yet for most countries. Um, but the last official one from South Africa in 2021 was around four, 450, I think. Yeah. Um, so we were looking at about 450 then, which is every 17 hours a rhino uh, was poached in 2021. We hope that it's down for this year, but the reality is that there was a lot of poaching last year. It was quite intense and many, many poachers moved into new areas. Um, Thankfully, though, there are some good, there is some good news. Kenya had zero poaching in 2022. That was excellent. And the state of Assam in India also had zero poaching. So there is a lot of good news, um, but we're still working to make sure that it stays low and, you know, decreases even further in many places that we work. You spoke about South Africa a bit. South Africa has really been a pioneer in rhino conservation because they've recovered the white rhino population from close to extinction and to a fairly healthy population. But... Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the last few months, there's been a lot of news about rhino poaching re reoccurring in South Africa at, at fairly high incidences. So why is there a sudden surge in rhino poaching in South Africa? Yeah, so um, it's, it is quite a complicated issue. But one of the things we don't know yet is the end number. So it may have increased. It may have stayed the same. But what has definitely changed is the location of poaching. Whereas before, um, most people will know the name Kruger National Park. It's been a huge place it's been the world's largest rhino population for you know a long long time um and that place that park in general has been you know really hit hard by poaching since the 2008 crisis began so that's been really difficult but in recent you know since covid i would say um there's been a lot of financial support for security to improve in kruger um unfortunately there's been a huge decline in the number of rhinos that live there which has made poaching much harder um and also that change in transport and things with COVID has shifted poaching syndicates into a new area, which is the province of KwaZulu-Natal, um, which is just, you know, slightly south of Kruger National Park. Um, and there are a few smaller reserves in KwaZulu-Natal with densely populated rhinos. So that's meant that basically some of our partners um, have been facing intense poaching particularly in the first you know the first six months of 2022 um we don't know the numbers I said for the last half so we can't confirm those yet but it's been really hard for those reserves because they didn't necessarily have the same manpower that the other places have had and um, they've had very different landscapes and places to look after so poaching necessarily hasn't necessarily increased overall we'll, we'll confirm that soon but we don't know um but definitely there's been a switch up in where the syndicates and the criminals have been targeting their focus so that's the biggest change and we hope that 2023 will bring a bit more good news for those places and um, right now we're doing everything we can to support them what is the main cause of poaching? so um rhino horn is one of the um most expensive illegal wildlife products <laughs> i probably can say um Illegal wildlife trade, as as you know, and many people will know, is a huge international crime. Um, and it used to be that people thought it's only being used in traditional Chinese medicine, um, and that evolved over time. That's changed quite significantly now. There is still some use there. It's absolutely not gone down to zero. Um, and we're working with partners to try and reduce that and end it. Um, but 
increasingly rhino horn is seen as a wealth and state symbol of wealth and status in in vietnam and china as well and that means that the illegal wildlife sorry rhino horn is not able to be traded internationally it's completely banned so it can only happen in like illegally um, and therefore rhinos unfortunately being poached and their horns trafficked out of the country to be used as a status of wealth so same way that someone might want you know an expensive watch or an expensive car if they choose to um this is another one of those symbols and it, it can seem very unusual to people that don't understand those things or why would you want to put you know a piece of animal on your mantelpiece um but that's that's a cultural thing and it's a behavior um and a lot of the time it's hard to change that so it's not just as simple as saying please don't do this or do you realize what this means it's it's just not that simple so we are working to try and improve the situation um and sometimes that's through improving enforcement so making sure that rhino horns just can't get trafficked to a place in the first in the first place but also to try and you know educate people and understand exactly what the drivers are to use and, and buy this product you mentioned that the trade of rhino horns is illegal but in the 2016 sites conference of parties there was a proposal to legalize international trade of rhino horns so why was this proposal uh, given in the first place and what are the arguments for the rhino horn trade yeah good question so um 2016 was when one proposal was submitted the most recent one was actually last year as well so 2022 isotini um also submitted a proposal to legalize the trade in rhino horn from from their country um none have been successful so far so that ban was put in place in 1977 and it still remains today that there's no there's no international trade in rhino horn there is illegal domestic trade within South Africa um, but any other country that is signed up as a party to CITES um, has a you know a ban on trading any rhino horn internationally. The reason that there is often this proposal that comes through is that technically um, rhino horn is a sustainable product. You can dehorn a rhino and wait you know it'll wake up from this procedure and in three years time it'll have pretty much regrown its horn and you could maybe dehorn it again and that is a that is an item that can go and sit somewhere with someone um, and that rhino is essentially okay still living roaming around um, so that is the biggest reason I would say for why people think that this might be appropriate right now obviously there are security costs at the moment as well so a lot of people need to bring money in to keep rhinos on their land. They want to conserve rhinos, they want to keep them safe, and actually it's hard to bring the amount of income they need to do so. So selling rhino horn might be a good way of them raising that money. The difficulty that we um, at Save the Rhino, and, and I, know, I know a lot of other organizations have with it, is that the illegal trade right now is so huge um, and so unsustainable, and the, most, the enforcement um, practices just aren't there to make sure that this is actually a well-regulated and eff effective legal trade. So if you started to legalize the horn trade at the moment, you would essentially be putting the world's remaining 26,000 rhinos, and that is all there is, to at, at huge risk, because you would never know which ones are legal, which ones are illegal. It could be a complete free-for-all. And to be honest, right now, it's just not a risk worth taking. Spoke about dehorning earlier. So, how effective is dehorning as a solution to poaching? Yeah, it's a tool in the toolbox. Um, we say this all the time at Save the Rhino, mm -hmm. but there's so many different things you need to do. There's not a simple solution. We can't stop rhino poaching overnight. We really wish we could, but um, but we can't. Um, 
And it is one tool that a lot of our partners use because it's often seen as a good deterrent. So poachers don't necessarily come in and attack that rhino. Um, as I said, the good thing is that essentially you can safely with you know the correct veteran procedures immobilize a rhino remove its horn wake it back up it goes on with its usual day-to-day life and then you have dehorned it hopefully you've taken away some of the danger and the risks um and you either are keeping that horn safe somewhere or it's destroyed and that's that's a different question um so it can be an effective it can be an effective measure for anti-poaching um and a lot of our partners do use it and it can be a safe biological measure there was a paper that came out last year in namibia about the population there to talk about the the impact of dehorning on breeding success which naturally is a really important question if it's going to be used as a tool um, does it then impact future calves being born or anything else um so it can be a really really helpful um aspect of anti-poaching yeah but that's not necessarily a guarantee that it's going to keep the rhinos safe it's not a guarantee um, there have been instances where um, dehorned rhinos have been killed by poachers anyway. Uh, it may be a case of it's still worth it to harvest the little, um, basically the epidermal base that's left behind, um, because ultimately not the entire horn is removed. It's it's cut uh, at a certain level. Uh, it pretty much works in much the same way as your as your fingernail. So if you were to remove the entire fingernail, then um, it wouldn't grow back at all. So obviously you, you trim them. So it's very similar in that in that um, in that way. But also there's also the idea basically that if poachers are tracking a rhino and then they come across it and it is dehorned, then they may just kill it anyway, basically to stop them from tracking it further down the line. Uh, at Save the Rhino, you guys also do a lot of work to reduce the demand for rhino horns. So could you just elaborate on how you do this? Yeah, so um, a lot of our work in terms of reducing illegal trade is with partners either directly in country in Vietnam and China. Um, We have some incredible partners there working to improve enforcement. Um, And some of that is actually through creating campaigns. So one of our partners that we work with is called Education for Nature Vietnam. And they do great work to um, promote, you know, non-wildlife or illegal wildlife trade I would say um so they they organize public service announcements and make sure that um any instance of illegal activity that people see they can report and there's a reporting hotline and all of those things and that's really important for for everything that we stand for um but we also try and investigate what's going on and how um different users and consumers are actually getting around one and why they're using it so as I said before it's understanding that behavior mentality um you have to understand why people want to use something before you can start to change why they, how they use it and why they use it. And, and then really targeting that. So there are specific groups of people, say it was people within government or it was a specific class or group in society. Um, so we work with a number of organisations to try and understand those groups of people and then to improve enforcement and then to work to reduce that illegal demand as well. So moving away from rhino poaching, how serious is the issue of habitat loss and climate change on rhino conservation? Yeah, huge as you'd expect. Um, Different rhinos are naturally impacted slightly differently. Um, So there are some species that this has and and will continue to impact a bit more just because of the number of them. Um, But habitat loss is a huge huge threat 
basically to to rhino conservation because without enough space rhinos won't breed properly because they won't get the right food or water or their territories may not be working out well and they'll get into more fights um there's a thing called ecological carrying capacity which basically assesses the amount of space um that a rhino or a number of rhinos will need to live in one area and it understands you know the biology of that place and how many water access points and all of those things and without the right habitat um, you could have too many rhinos and then they won't breed or you could have too few rhinos and they won't breed so it's really important to get that right and habitat loss or degradation or just fragmenting habitats, um, which is really a difficult thing for the moment for Sumatran rhinos, is going to be and is already actually a, a really difficult one for us to overcome. And we've got to work with partners and we do work with partners to try and make that a better situation. Now, I've, I go on to habitat loss because that is hugely impacted by climate change. Um, but the main things for rhinos when it comes to climate change are going to be changing weather patterns. So, you know, increasing in drought, increasing drought. We've already seen in um, sub-Saharan Africa huge droughts in recent years, and that's been affecting every single species, especially rhinos. Um, and then flooding as well. So we've seen the same flooding in India, and that's also affecting rhino species. So it, it's really hard to try and manage those because they're obviously long-term impacts and we don't really know exactly where they're going to be a problem in the future. And it's really important that we kind of understand what's going on in the world and how we can play a role in stopping climate change as well. No, it's just, uh, if if I can just go into um, perhaps specific examples. So for example, in, in Namibia, um, at the beginning of last year, they just come out of the end of a 10-year-long drought particularly in the Kanani region in the Northwest. And what they were seeing in those scenarios is basically massive population declines, particularly of grazing animals, um, such as springbok, hemsbok, um, and zebra. Um, and it had massive implications as well for the, for the black rhinos that lived there, particularly of, of younger animals and of older animals. Um, there was much less food, and to be honest, that population as it is, they're not... Um, Physically, they're not the, the the fattest of rhinos. Um, basically, they tend to be a lot slimmer than the ones that are found in, say, Etosha National Park, for example. So that drought would have had enormous implications for their reproductive success uh, and just the general health of those adult animals in, in general. At Save the Rhinos, you guys also work with the two rarest species of rhinos in the world, the Sumatran and Javan rhinos. What makes these two species so unique and how many of them are left in the world and where are they found? Uh, okay, so yes, so our partners, we work with the International Rhino Foundation in the United States, um, who works with directly with partners uh, on the ground in, in Indonesia, uh, such as Yayasan um, Balak Indonesian or Yabi. And so, I'll, I'll, yeah, let's, let's tackle them in several sections. So um, the Javan rhino is uh, found solely now in, in one national park in Western Java, in Ujong Kulon National Park. Historically, it was found over much of Southeast Asia. It was found in, uh, from India down into Cambodia and Laos and um, into Vietnam until the, uh, the last one was shot, sadly, in 2010. Um, and then the Sumatran rhino, which numbers um, the latest estimates from the IUCN are between 34 and 47 individuals. Um, and then there's also the estimate as well from the Indonesian government, which is fewer than 80. Um, those animals had a similar range to the Javan rhino, 
um, although there is some indication that they tended to prefer montane forests a little bit more. Um, they're a lot smaller and a bit more uh, agile. Um, but those had ranged, again, from India, Bangladesh, um, Myanmar, down into Thailand, Malaysia, uh, and then also into Sumatra and Borneo. Um, but sadly, that species has gone from about 99% of its historic range. Um, in terms of what makes them unique, um, so the Javan rhino is in the same genus as the greater one-horned rhino. Um, it, they're both the two Asian one-horned species. Um, but in terms of the differences from, from that species, from the greater one-horned, it tends to have uh, sort of fewer skin folds. It's a lot smaller than the greater one-horned rhino. It's about half the weight, usually, give or take. Um, and then the females also are more or less completely lacking a horn. Um, so it might be a little mounded, rounded bump, basically, and that's that's all it is. That's all it gets to. Um, but the real unique one of a kind uh, is the Sumatran rhino, which uh, basically its, its ancestors diverged from other rhino species perhaps 26, 27 million years ago. And it's very small. It's perhaps uh, it's around 800 kilos, whereas the Javan rhino, which is the next the next smallest species, is 990 kilos to 2,000 kilos. So there's quite a jump in size. Uh, it's hairy, particularly the babies. When they're first born, they are very, very fluffy and very, very cute. They, they've got sort of locks of um, red, reddish brown hair. Um, and then it's it's also the only Asian rhino with two horns. So there's a but at the same time, and this is also unique to the Asian rhinos, is that they've got two very sharp um, incisor teeth on the, the lower jaw. So in that respect, the smart rhino, like the other Asian rhinos, is yeah very, very similar. Um, they have, yeah, there's a lot of dispute about whether they're more closely related to the other Asian rhinos or to the African rhinos. Unlike the other three species of rhinos, the Indian rhino, the white rhino, black rhino, uh, these two species of rhinos are really struggling and um so why why are they so endangered and what are some challenges you guys are facing in conserving the species so the initial causes of decline of those two species is quite familiar it's much the same as the other rhino species it was uh hunting particularly during the 19th and 20th century for horns and also for um basically habitat loss or agricultural expansion and things like that but today we're seeing quite this separate kind of separate threats really. So the main ones for the Java rhinos at the moment, they're found in one population. It's a very small population, in fact, and I didn't mention this earlier, but the, the population, the official estimate from the Indonesian government is that there are 77 individuals left in the park. And then that's it. That's the global population. Um, that park is extremely vulnerable to tsunamis. Um, it's very close to uh, the son of Krakatoa, so Anna Krakatoa erupted in, in 1883, and then there's the what's left um, behind now, and that's been known to cause tsunamis, and in fact there was one in 2018 that um, unfortunately, fortunately, uh, no rhinos were reported to have been harmed, um, but it does highlight just how threatened they are by this by this threat. Other threats for Java rhinos are disease from domestic livestock. And then there's also 
um, very dense populations of the Oringa palm, which is an invasive palm tree that basically chokes out, it shadows all the rhino's food plants uh, and prevents them from being able to grow. And so there's these areas, you know, some can be as dense as 700 Oringa palms per hectare, uh, and it completely makes the forest floor barren. Um, so that can reduce population density of Java rhinos. And then for the Sumatran rhino, at the moment, the main concern is basically because the population is so small, they're all scattered far and wide, and it's very, very difficult for them to find one another to breed. And so, of course, basically not enough calves are being born to replace those that have died, whether naturally or in the event that if there is poaching. Um, but the last recorded confirmed case of poaching smart rhinos was in 2006. Um, to further exacerbate that, many females, if they don't breed regularly, uh, they will develop what we call reproductive pathologies. So these could be cysts, tumours uh, that can develop in the uterus, in the ovaries, the cervix, and that can prevent them from uh, being able to conceive later as and when they actually do find a male to make this. One of your main projects is the, the Sumatran Rhino Century. So could you just talk about what you guys do in the century? Uh, okay, so we don't we don't run the SRS, the Smart Rhino Sanctuary, ourselves. Um, this is run by an Indonesian rhino NGO that I mentioned earlier, earlier, Yayasan Badak Indonesia or or Yabi. Um, this facility began construction in 1996, and it was a joint um, project between the International Rhino Foundation in the US and Yabi and the Indonesian government. Uh, and basically the plan there is to breed an insurance population of Sumatran rhinos that could later be released into protected forests in Indonesia. And uh, so in terms of how this project is run, we've already seen some success in the form of three births. So there's one calf that was born in 2012, that's uh, Andatu. And then there was Delilah born in 2016. And then there was also a young female born in 2022, March 2022. Uh, and we hope that uh, in the future there will be more calves born. That's great. And you could could you guys elaborate on some of your other projects regarding the Sumatran and Javan rhinos? Yes. So the partners who we work with, um, there's a project in the Waycamas National Park, which is the same park that the SRS is in. And basically, this is a reforestation project that involves employing local people to, uh, to propagate and plant um, native vegetation to basically restore areas of the park that have lost um, vegetation to uh, illegal agricultural expansion. And we also have the rhino protection units that are, operate both in Way Canvas National Park and in Ujon Kulon National Park. And those teams go out into the forest, the teams of four, they patrol the forest, they look out for signs of illegal activity, they will disable snares, they will um, help the authorities to apprehend uh, illegal intruders. Uh, and if there are signs, they will also take note of um, wildlife behavior, uh, but they're not the main units to do this, there are other units for this. 
Uh, and then our final project is basically a ring of palm eradication. So as I mentioned earlier, in Ujong Kulon, um, there's the Orenga Palm, and this project involves employing local people to go into the forest and hectare by hectare using manual tools, manual saws to avoid disturbance to the rhinos themselves. They will clear patches of the forest and then allow the, the vegetation to recover, and it can recover very, very quickly uh, in a tropical environment. And we have seen rhinos move back into those areas uh, that have been cleared. How important is community engagement in rhino conservation? Um, yeah, communities are incredibly important. I mean, we all we all live in somewhere and we all want to know what's going on in our local place, whether that be you know a small town, a city, we all want to understand what's going on nearby us. Um, and that's no different if you happen to live next to rhinos. <laughs> it's just obviously very different from what I what I know and live um, being, you know, in London every day or most days. Um, but it's important to make sure that those people know what that means. And, and I say that in the sense of many people, particularly in Africa, um, many people that live next to rhinos don't see them because those rhinos are being... You know, they're generally behind fences, albeit very large locations with fences around them. Um, they're being, you know, they've got a lot of security around them. And there will be kids that have grown up, you know, potentially a couple hundred metres away from a rhino most of their life and haven't seen them. And so making sure those people understand that that, that is real, it is there, and actually it is your wildlife, it's your back garden. It's not It's not anyone else's in the world. You live here. Um that's really important because also if you don't have that sort of understanding you just cannot protect anything because no one can protect or do anything about something they don't just don't they just don't know about um so a lot of our work now um it comes through improving you know general standards across the board um making sure that communities are bought in to projects and are really worked with they're not just like come along we want you to agree with this thing it's actually like what will help local people and local communities and how can rhino conservation help to deliver that um, and that key part of our work in, in Namibia particularly at SRT and um, Save the Rhino Trust um, their community engagement is incredible and it's really a keystone of what they do every single day um, and then we have a project in Zambia that Jimmy knows a little bit more about than I. <laughs> yes well we've got the Lesha Luangwa uh, in Zambia but we've also got um, Sorry, the, Kenya as well, and Kenya as well yeah the <laughs> Mazingere Yetu project on the Barana Conservancy in Kenya uh, and this began to receive its first students in July of last year so July 2022 uh, and this has been a very 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 exciting project uh, it's a Basically, based the building is based around an old tannery building on the Conservancy that was used for um, leather processing, basically, and using recycled materials and things like that. That has created a venue, basically, to educate local students from the local schools about the importance of wildlife conservation and uh, ecosystem health. Um, and then there's also things like there's um, uh, the Mazingera Express, which is a bus that takes the um, the kids out onto safari where they um, receive presentations from uh, locally employed conservation educators about, you know, it could be anything from soil health to food webs and all this. And at the same time, they're seeing all the, the animals on Barana. So it's, you know, it could be lions, cheetahs, 
black rhino, white rhino, reticulated giraffe, Jackson's heartbeats, you know, whatever. Um, so that's very exciting. And the venue looks absolutely fantastic as well. Yeah. And my final question for this interview is, how can an individual contribute to rhino conservation? Yeah, so it kind of follows that last one, actually, you said about communities, because um, we don't know, we can't protect or help something we don't understand about. And um, I know people often say raising awareness, raising awareness, and, you know, what's the impact of that? But genuinely, if someone heard something on this podcast that they never heard before, and then they went and told one other person, the impact of that, it just grows and grows and grows, and people can start to understand what's going on. Just, not just about rhinos, you know, this is everything that we can talk about in terms of conservation and many other aspects of life. Um, but that is genuinely key to supporting rhino conservation, understanding, growing your own knowledge, expanding that and sharing with other people. Um, obviously, there are other ways that people might already be thinking, okay, how can I support the planet? How can I help nature those things will also be helping rhinos whether it's you know shopping sustainably and bringing your own bags to the supermarket or it's thinking about your travel options and how you might get to somewhere without maybe using up as much carbon i mean those things are important for everyone and rhinos are included in that in that bracket um naturally there's more specific ways if you wanted to donate to a specific rhino project um that will have a significant impact um fundraising for rhinos similarly those donations and those funds you know really do make a difference and actually writing our impact report at the moment and it's incredible what you can achieve with um a fairly small amount of money in the grand scheme of the world um but it really does have a huge impact i don't know jim if you want to add on to that yeah i mean also as well i know we mentioned we did mention the carbon aspect of things reducing one's carbon footprint but one thing that the pandemic has highlighted enormously is just how much how reliant these um many of these projects are uh, on tourism revenue mm -hmm. and so if you can and if you'd like to then visiting these projects and going to see these locations uh in africa uh can go a long way absolutely so that was my final question for the interview. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talk, talking to you about rhino conservation and I hope you guys continue your great work. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.